our scripture lesson today is from Revelation 11, 15 through 19. I'll give you a few seconds or moments to find that in your Bible if you care to follow along. As we come into the presence of God, just like when we first met someone, the most powerful moment is the one where we hear them speak. Hear now as God speaks from his word. So Revelation 11, 15 through 19, the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of his Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This is the word of the Lord. All right, kids, you are dismissed to worship kids style. Parents, you're always welcome to keep your kids with you or send them out to worship kids style. There's also nursery care that's available. And let's pray as they head out and return to this text. God and Father, I pray that you would just be with us now as we study your word. That you might speak to all of us, even though we are sinful as we sit under its authority. That you would help me as I seek to proclaim it, even though I am sinful. That you would help all of us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. So the conclusion of a story oftentimes makes or breaks the story and what we think of it. I don't know if you ever had that experience where, like, maybe on the one hand you're watching a movie or you're reading a book, you get to the last couple chapters or ten minutes, and, you know, it wraps up, and you're like, really? And it can actually, like, kind of ruin the whole story. There have been times where I'm like, I was enjoying it, and then the way it just wrecked it for me. And on the other hand, there are times when you're reading a story or watching a movie, and you get to that final ten minutes, and suddenly it's like, oh, and like everything clicks into place, and the whole story before it is transformed as you see how it all ties together in that conclusion. We've been preaching through the book of Revelation, and in many ways, what's happened in this book is this series of cycles, of series of visions. We've talked about it before, but I'll put an outline up on screen of Revelation as we've been approaching it. And it breaks down into these sets of visions, and at the end of each of these sets of visions is sort of a, a vision of the end, and of Christ's return, and the end of the story of Scripture. And if you look at that outline, you'll notice our text for this morning is the end of one of those cycles. In Revelation 8 and 9, we saw this picture of how our age is under judgment with these trumpets being blown. And then in Revelation 10, we saw the hope 
of God's salvation going out to the nations. And in Revelation 11, we saw how the church is bearing witness to God and bringing that message of salvation by his power to the nations. And now we get this glimpse of the end. And um, these verses are about that. God's kingdom coming to dwell with earth. And it ends with the images of lightning and thunder and an earthquake, which actually ends several of these cycles in the book. All right? And I showed you that just to say that just like in any story, the conclusion, the ending, is extremely important. And so I want us to slow down a little bit. I know reading like five verses is less than we've been doing lately in Revelation. Because these themes have gotten repeated and will get repeated throughout those visions in Revelation. And I want to spend a little time talking through the two central themes here. And really the two central themes of the ending of Scripture's story. Themes are judgment and blessing. We're just going to spend some time digging into each of those ideas and talking about how Scripture treats them and how we're supposed to think about them and what they mean for us. All right? First, judgment. Judgment. That is not the one that we get excited about digging into, I know. Judgment is a hard theme for us in Scripture. Well, let's start by just looking at this text and talk about it. So if you look at verse 18. It says, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. And then skip down a couple lines, because we have some blessing in there. But then it ends with, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So first we are told, the nations raged. That is referring properly to what happened in the last uh, few verses of chapter 11, where the nations come and just kill God's witnesses and mock and oppose the, um, his reign. And that includes that, but it also includes the broader reality that in our world there are the powers of this world. That in a sense, Scripture views like all the nations, including ours, including others in the world, as in some sense opposed to God's kingdom as it's coming. And there's a lot to talk about there, and in two weeks we'll talk about that. So um, if you have questions about that theme, uh, come back as we dig into Revelation 13. But the nations rage, and then we're told that God's wrath wrath of God. And that's probably, when we talk about judgment, the phrase that makes us the most uncomfortable. So let's talk about the wrath of God. Or because there's this one Scottish preacher I always hear, I always want to say the wrath of God. But um, let's talk about God's wrath. First of all, God's wrath is an important idea in Scripture, and it's not one that you can easily dismiss. I think what a lot of people have is this idea that in the Bible, you have sort of like this Old Testament wrathful God and in this New Testament loving God, and they try to kind of just not deal with wrath and judgment by just consigning it to the Old Testament. But that's not true in either direction, really. In the first place, in the Old Testament, God is pictured as fundamentally loving. For example, in Deuteronomy 34, he reveals himself to Moses, and he reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's God in the Old Testament. And then on the other hand, in the New Testament, we see God's wrath regularly. Here's Jesus in John 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or Paul in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress God's wrath is a major theme of the New Testament. That said, we need to make sure we understand what that word means. 
God's wrath does not mean his uncontrolled temper. It doesn't mean that he blows his top, loses his cool, gets fed up with sin, and, you know, kind of flies off the handle. And the word wrath in our world, I think, often feels like that. And that's not what Scripture means. Instead, in Scripture, God's wrath is God's settled opposition to and commitment to judge the world's evil. I'll say that again. It's his settled opposition to and commitment to judge the world's evil. When you hear a news story about people doing something terrible, how do you feel? When, you know, when you're watching the news and there's some warlord exploiting his citizens or some predator preying upon weak and helpless people or some, you know, company poisoning kids just to save some money, you, you feel angry, right? There's this sort of deep anger that you feel at that evil, and that is sort of what God's wrath is meant to communicate, that he has this deep opposition to and commitment to end that evil. You can see it in our passage, in fact. It says that God is destroying the destroyers of the earth. Scripture's idea is that sin, and um, in this case it's the nations especially, as they are committed to sin and opposing God's kingdom, sin is always destructive. And all of the problems we see in our world, all the wars and drug cartels and wrecked environment and poor people starving and oppression and persecution and shootings and struggles with loneliness and despair that people, all of that destruction is ultimately a consequence of human sin. And so what God is doing in his wrath is he is destroying those destroyers of the earth. One other way to look at that same idea, in verse 15 it talks about how God's kingdom is coming. It says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we're going to talk about God's kingdom coming in a minute when we talk about blessing, but notice that a necessary part of its coming is the kingdom of this world ending. That it, you have to judge, in a sense. Judgment has to come on the kingdom of this age before the kingdom of peace that God is bringing can come. All of which is to say that God's judgment, when we talk about it in Scripture, even God's wrath, in the Bible is actually an essential part of God's goodness. That's what it's understand. It's actually kind of a product of God's love, that God cannot be good, he cannot love creation, without in a real sense being angry at its destruction. Just like I cannot pretend to love my wife and kids if I was not angry, right, if they were being harmed. That, that it is actually God's goodness that when he sees us destroying the world, he adopts that posture of judgment. But I say that, and I know we still don't like the idea of judgment, right? We still wrestle with it. It still feels hard for us. Why is that? I think, let me just suggest this, that maybe we have the wrong idea about what we're struggling with. If I said God is coming in wrath to judge Hitler and ISIS Harvey Weinstein, right? Like, I don't think we would struggle that much with that idea, would we? We would all kind of be like, good, <laughs> sounds, sounds about right to me. It's not actually the idea of God's judgment that's hard for us. The issue is that in Scripture, God's wrath is coming against all of us. It's coming against normal people like us and our neighbors, and not just the ISISs of the world. And so our problem isn't with the idea that God judges— our problem is sort of with the idea of sin in Scripture. 
and with the idea that ordinary people like us are worthy of that kind of judgment. We don't feel like we are the destroyers of the earth. So let me tell you a story. This is not a true story, but once there was a factory in a small town, and you know, a couple hundred people worked there. It was kind of the center of this small town. And at that factory was a manager who did not work very hard. Not, it's not that he was, like, robbing from the factory or something, but, you know, he gave it, like, 70%, you know? I mean, and, you know, he'd kind of yell at some employees and surf Facebook a lot and do some work, but, you know, didn't work all that hard, right? He's at that factory. So at that factory, what happened, though, because of that manager, is, first of all, the other managers stopped working that hard. If you don't think that happens, you've never worked in a, like, you know, like I remember being a manager in retail and it was like one person doesn't do their thing and everyone's like, well, you know, we're going to do 70% too, right? Because obviously justice says we shouldn't have to shoulder his burden. And then the employees, right, they're kind of like, well, you know, we, we don't need to work that hard either. And they kind of slack off. And then before long, you know, the, the factory's just running at that lower rate. And then economy is competitive, right? And so after a couple years, that factory closes down, because that's what happens when the place runs at 70%. And all those people lose their jobs, and, you know, all these families lose their income, and former employees get depressed or start drinking because of the consequences of that. And the whole economy of the town, right? The diner across the road shuts down, and there's not jobs, and people move away, and property values drop, and the schools decline, and this whole town, in a sense, is killed because that one manager did 70%. Now, obviously, in the real world, things are never that simple to trace back. But, but you can imagine that, 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 that is sort of the way our world works, right? And the thing is, if you went to that manager and said, do you realize that this is the destruction that you're, you know, surfing Facebook when you should be working is causing, he would look at you like you were crazy. He would, he would never recognize the sort of ripples that spread outward through creation because of his choice. Something like that is the way scripture views sin in the world. We are designed to live 100% as human beings for the glory of God and the love of our neighbors and the good of the world. We're supposed to bear God's image perfectly, fully in our lives as we move through the world. Whenever we see a good that's supposed to be done, we should do it. And whenever there is a lack or somebody has need, we should be quick to fulfill it. And we are... Um, you know, our ambition should always be perfectly to love God and love our neighbor. And you do not have to do 0% of that in order to cause destruction to God's world. Doing 70% can still lead to that destruction of creation, which is exactly what happens in our world, right? We, yes, we are not all Hitler, but all of us in, um, in our ordinary sin cause millions of people to starve, and lakes to be poisoned, and tyrants to rule, and evil to go unopposed, just because in aggregate, as we all in just ordinary ways don't fully live for God's glory and pursue it, the world is broken. And if that is the story of our world, then we do all deserve that judgment. So then the last claim of verse 18 is that the time will come for the dead to be judged. There is a judgment coming for that sin destruction that it causes. At the end of Scripture's story, God will come to judge the living and the dead. And we're going to talk more about that later in the book of Revelation, but I want to make sure, as we're trying to connect and reflect on this theme of judgment, that we have the right understanding of that. What Scripture says is that God will come, and our works will be known, and then that those who are in Jesus Christ will be saved, and all 
off, the rest of us will be cast into hell. But let me say something really important. Make sure you heard what I just said correctly. Because what I said is not that all of us will be judged and God will, on the basis of our works, decide what happens to us, right? This is like the, the trap people fall into, is that it's like, God's like, well, you know, you, Bob, like, you were great. You know, you get to go to heaven, and, you know, you, Eric, like, uh, you know, you, you, you're going to hell. And, you know, like, Tim, it's like, it's 50-50. Like, I don't know, is it like eternal life or eternal judgment? You know, <laughs> kind of like caught in the tension there. That is not at all Scripture's picture of judgment. You you can peek ahead at Revelation 20. We'll dig into it more when we're there. But it says that the books of everyone's work, you know, deeds were open, right? And, um, and then on that basis, everyone in the world is condemned. And then it is those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, right? Who are saved by God's grace alone and trusting in Jesus who are saved. So in Scripture, it's not, you know, it, yeah, that's, that's the idea, right? We are all worthy of that judgment that is coming. But that is the first proof. Even though I just explained it, that is heavy stuff. I know, that's not what we like to camp out on in a sermon. But let me just suggest, before we move on to talking about that hope of blessing and God's return, let me just suggest three reasons that we need to have a clear grasp of that side of the story. Three reasons why the book of Revelation emphasizes that side of the story. One, in light of God's judgment, we should have a soberness about our sin and a deep hope in the gospel soberness about our sin and a deep hope in the gospel. On the one hand, this means that we should not excuse our sin. The way we measure, my, you know, the way I'm supposed to measure my sin is not on the scope of like, how do I compare to the worst people in the world? The, the way I'm supposed to measure my sin is on the scale of how, um, of, you know, how it destroys the earth and the judgment of God that's coming against it. And that should tell me that it is serious. But at the same time, that should drive me hope of the gospel. Our hope is not that we can fix ourselves. It's not that we work really hard and become good people and, you know, sort of then deserve God's salvation. I mean, even, even if that was the story, that doesn't change the fact that I have in so many ways caused destruction by my sin in the past. The gospel is that because Jesus Christ has died and faced God's judgment for us, we are delivered and our sins are forgiven. Seeing the reality of God's wrath coming on the world should drive me to deeply hope in that truth and rest in the fact that Jesus has delivered me from that wrath that is to come. So that's one thing it should do to us. Two, God's judgment should give us hope that this world can be repaired. Knowing that God is going to come and bring justice should give us hope that the world will be repaired. There's two mistakes that you can make when you face how broken this world is when you face all the injustices of the world. One mistake is to think that we can simply fix it if we try hard enough. That if we just worked really hard or had the right systems in place or you know, just motivated everyone properly, that this world could be fixed by our efforts. Now that mistake, I really respect people who make that mistake. Like some of the greatest people in history, right, have made that mistake and thought that they could do that. And it is good for us to work for good in the world and seek where we can to repair the brokenness of the world. But the problem is that if you spend your life thinking it is in your power to bring true justice and true peace and true healing to the world, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to give up because you realize that the world just resists those attempts to, to be fixed, or you're going to end up doing terrible things. I really respect 
respect a lot of people who think they can fix the world. Also, some of the worst things in history have been done by people who thought it was in their power to fully fix everything, regardless of the cost. So that's one thing you can fall into. You'll make that mistake, or you will just despair. You will become cynical when you face the world's injustice. You will say, you know, things can't be fixed, so why even bother, right? Might as well. That's just the way it is. And honestly, like, this is a thing I wrestle with in my heart regularly. Like, I'll see that those terrible things in the news, and instead of feeling angry, and instead of being like, this is wrong, and we should fix it, I'm just like, yep, that's, that's how the world goes. But God's justice and the reality of his coming judgment actually delivers us from both of those mistakes. On the one hand, it says, you don't have to fix everything. You are able to do what you can, knowing that God, in the end, will bring perfect justice to creation. And at the same time, it says, you, don't, you shouldn't give up hope. You shouldn't just resign yourself to this world, because God is opposed to the brokenness of the world, and he is coming to bring justice to the world. And so you ought to do what you can, but all the while recognizing that it's God, in the end, who's going to bring And then one more way God's judgment should affect our lives. We should be freed from the need to demand justice for ourselves. We should be freed from the need to make sure we get our pound of flesh. Listen to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice Paul's logic. He says, Don't seek vengeance, right? Don't avenge yourselves, but not because of the love of God there. He says, because of the wrath of God. God's judgment actually frees us to love people even when they wrong us. It frees us from the need to try to force the world to be just for us because we can leave that justice up to God. I think this is actually part of why the book of Revelation highlights this, because you have this church who's facing terrible suffering and persecution. Right? The government is opposed to them. They're, you know, their fellow citizens in the city are turned against them. And they are facing hardship. And they're getting thrown in prison. And some of them are even dying. And the question for them is sort of like, how can I love these people in light of these terrible things that are happening to us? And the answer isn't, oh, just get over it. Right? Which I think sometimes Christians think the answer is. It's just like, ah, it's not a big deal that you're getting murdered. That's not Scripture's answer. Scripture's answer is to say, justice will come but it's not your job to bring it. And so you are actually freed to say, I am going to follow Jesus and seek to love, trusting that God's justice will, in the end, bring the, the, the just consequences to death. At the same time, it does also call us to love because it reminds us that justice is something we deserve. And so we are able to recognize as we are delivered from it that we should also be gracious. God's justice actually gives us space rather than seeking to get what's ours and do an eye for an eye to say, that judgment is in God's hands. I will simply seek to love and obey. All right, that's a judgment. But then alongside that in the passage, we have the promise of blessing. The other thing Revelation consistently says about the end of the story is this hope we have of God's blessing coming to earth. And it really, there's two different sides to that blessing. One is the image of God's kingdom kingdom of God coming to earth. Verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
We read that already. Or verse 17 again. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The promises of both of those verses is that we are hoping that God's kingdom will come to this world, that his reign will be taken up. So what does that mean, God's kingdom? Think about this. Sometimes you hear people talk about what would happen if the government got its act together, right? You've ever heard, you know, people make these comments, man, if the government would just get its act together. And really, you can, like, you can divide the world into sort of politically, you know, into sort of how optimistic versus pessimistic different people feel about that. And I'm not here to rule on that, right? We as a church should include people all across that spectrum. But imagine a world where not just what we mean when we say that, but where truly, perfectly, the government had its act together, right? Where, like, every crime was perfectly punished and perfect justice and no innocent people were ever punished and everything was fair and there was no waste or fraud or abuse and we lived in perfect peace with each other and with all the other nations because we figured out how to get along with all of them and every politician was a servant of the common good only seeking what was best for the country rather than their own interests that would already be a pretty great world right? You know, when you think about, if you lived in that kingdom, like if that was on earth, everyone would want to live there, right? Because, you know, a lot of the social ills that we face would be gone. Now imagine a world where that wasn't just the government, but where all of us, all human beings, also got their acts together. Where um, nobody ever lied or tried to take advantage of somebody else. And nobody tore other people down just to feel good about themselves. And we all worked hard at jobs that we were passionate about just because we loved the work that God had given us to do. And we sacrificially loved our families and cared for the people around us just because they were made in God's image and we were called to care for them. Can you imagine that world, right? How incredible that would be. In essence, that's what scripture means by the kingdom. That God's reign, God's rule, is imposed on our world such that both the structures of our world around us and our own hearts and personal lives and relationships with him are perfectly under his authority and conformed to his will. That is the kingdom of God. And that is a beautiful world. But it's more than just that. It's God's kingdom. It's also God's presence. The presence of God the other side of that hope of blessing. Look at verse 19. It says, God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. All right, so here's the imagery. Here's what's going on, okay? So in the Old Testament, God has a temple, and it's pictured as his dwelling place on earth. And in that temple, there is a room. There's the outer court, and then the priest can go into the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies, the most holy place, and that's where God is pictured as dwelling. And there's actually the Ark of the Covenant, which is sort of God's throne, it seems, that he sits on. And that room is separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain. That's the earthly temple, and only the high priest once a year can go in there to make atonement for sins, and otherwise no one's allowed in, right? So that's the earthly temple, and then when Jesus dies on that earthly temple, that curtain that set that holy of holies apart is torn from top to bottom, right? To communicate that in the work of Jesus, what's happening is that we are getting access to God through Jesus Christ, that we can come into his presence through the atonement Jesus has worked. So take that image, right? But still, in this age, there is a sort of distance, right? 
We are. We're given that access to God by Jesus. But man, there are plenty of days when I wake up and I do not feel that deep, close, personal communion with God. The imagery in Revelation is to say, in Revelation 4 and 5, we get this picture of the heavenly throne room, which is really the heavenly temple in a sense. That this is sort of the holy of holies for real, not just on earth, but, you know, but in heaven. This is where God dwells, and that's where God is. And, um, and, I mean, that's true right now. But here what it says then is that God's temple in heaven was open. So it's saying not just that this earthly symbolic thing happened, but that actually the, the, the barrier, the curtain between earth and heaven is torn open. And God's presence is now actually with us, right? We can look and see. That's why it mentions the Ark of the Covenant. Him there on his throne for real. That's what's happening at the end. What makes the new creation truly new? What makes our blessing at Christ's return truly blessed ultimately all flows from the reality that God's presence is being perfectly and fully made manifest on earth. One of the things we've talked about before is the reality of the resurrection and new creation. Um, if you've been here, we've, we've discussed how um, we have kind of misconceptions sometimes about the age to come and our hope, and it's not sort of clouds and, you know, harps and stuff, but it, it's a real, like, physical, you know, Jesus comes back to earth, and this earth is remade, and we're physically, bodily raised from the dead, and that's true, and that's an important thing for us to appreciate biblically, but I was reflecting as I sat with this text that in doing that, I think sometimes I might not stress properly the reality that that's not the ultimate source of our hope, right? Like, like in the name of, of emphasizing um, that it's not sort of like fat baby angels, right? And, you know, and Hallmark cards. That, you know, there, there's a kind of earthiness and you can dig your hands in the soil of new creation and stuff. I think I maybe don't always properly emphasize that, well, all of that is good, right? The kingdom of God coming to earth is good. That thing that we imagined where we're living together and working and flourishing, that's all good. That's not what we're ultimately hoping for. The, the true and deep source of our hope in that new creation is that their God will dwell with us and we will get to see him and be with him face to face. It is God's presence that is the thing we are actually ultimately built for, and God's presence is the thing that will make that new creation good. Have you ever had the experience of being reunited with, like, an old good friend? I've had this happen a couple of times, where, you know, someone that was very dear to me, and, you know, for years we had been apart, and we get reunited and get to spend some time together. And there's this moment where you're, you feel this deep sort of happiness and fullness because you realize that there was this sort of like empty place in your heart that, you know, that that person had filled and you didn't even know it was there anymore. You've gotten so used to it and then you're there and you're like, oh, like, yes, like, I see this, this part of me that's lacking being fulfilled through your presence. Scripture's idea is that that is really the condition of all of humanity, at least, that we all have this infinite emptiness that most of us don't even recognize most of the time in our souls that's meant to be filled by communion with our Creator. And that when Jesus returns, our hope of that blessing is that that place is once more filled and we find that delight and fullness that we all long for without quite knowing why. So that is the promise of blessing. Let's talk about applying that to our lives. Um, there is a lot of applications that could be made about that truth, obviously, it's the hope that we're living for. But I actually want to kind of go on a rabbit trail 
when we talk about applying the second thing. And I want to discuss a kind of specific, separate question that some of you have that's going to connect back to this at the end, all right? So we're going to talk about something else that is not immediately stemming from this, but you're going to see when we get to the end why we're talking about it here. Is that, is that fair for everyone? So, um, so I was reflecting on a couple of conversations I've had over the last couple of years. But um, so when you are a new pastor, which I've been here a little over three and a half years, but when you're a new pastor at a place, um, they, you know, th them being the, the people with wise things to say, um, this is basically what they say to do. They say, on the one hand, don't change stuff. Don't go in and try to change everything, right? For a year or two, you just, you know, you just sit and watch and figure stuff out. Except you can pick one thing and just from day one, right, change that one thing. And you kind of have permission to just figure out what that one thing is and otherwise don't mess with stuff. Does that make sense? That's, that's what they say. And um, I was reflecting on, so, so I, when, we, when I came here, from day one, like I very intentionally, the, the thing that I changed was that worship services would be like 15 or 20 minutes longer than, than they had been before. And some folks loved that and some folks struggle with that. But I was reflecting... From a, from a conversation I had, I've never actually taken the time to acknowledge or talk that through. And so um, what I'm going to do is actually take a little time and explain why that is, and especially maybe speak to you if you're in that latter group of people that have wrestled with that change. Um, and like I said, you're going to see how this connects to what we were just talking about in a minute. But, but if that's, you're in that place, or if you're not, but it's just something that you've wondered about, um, a couple of things. First of all, two things that I want to acknowledge that are true and are important, you know, if you're someone who struggles with longer worship times. One is that it is true in gathered worship that we should not needlessly waste time, right? There isn't, you know, it's not sort of just better to do it longer. And there are times, I don't know if you're supposed to say this as a pastor, but like I have been there at churches that spend like 25 minutes in announcements listing everybody's like life events or I have listened to sermons where, you know, he has like 10 minutes of stuff to say and preaches for a half hour, and <laughs> the rest of the time is just kind of repeating the thing. Um, and yeah, that, that's not a good thing, right? If, if, and if someone struggles, I mean, if someone feels like I needlessly, you know, I have 10 minutes of stuff to say, um, and, you know, <laughs> and go, you know, talk to me about that, I would be happy to hear that. I don't think that's the case, because I actually cut my sermons fr down from an hour to 35 minutes every week. But, um, <laughs> but that said, that is a real legitimate complaint if someone feels like that's happening and it's not glorifying God. And in addition, I get that we all get used to certain things and oftentimes what we experienced in our childhood or at a certain formative point in our life can shape us in ways that are really hard to change. That's true for everybody. I, I always think about, I had a friend in Lincoln at the church that I was an assistant pastor at there who she was from this like black Pentecostal background, and she would, they'd, they'd have these, like, three-hour church services, and she would just get so frustrated, because we'd get done at, like, an hour and a half, and she would be like, I was just getting started, like, I was just hitting the groove, and, and it ended. All of us, our past experiences can shape that. That said, let me then offer two things for you to think about, if you're someone that struggles with, um, with that. Um, two things for you to ponder about worship time some of those related issues. One is practical, and the other is theological, okay? First, practically, it is pretty much a demonstrable fact that healthy and churches do not have super short, constrained times of worship. 
and I will just show you the numbers on that, okay? First, up on the screen, people who study Christianity in America split it into four groups, the church, evangelical Protestants, mainline Protestants, and Catholics. I'm not going to define those if you're not someone that's familiar with that, but um, we, I mean, we would be an evangelical Protestant church. Our denomination is a part of evangelicalism, which means basically that we hold that scripture is God's authoritative word and that we need to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and proclaim that hope to the nations. So those are kind of the groups. Second, let's talk about size. So you probably know that Christianity has struggled somewhat and shrunk somewhat in America, but that is not at all an equal phenomenon. Um, so, so over the last 20 years, right, the, the black church has shrunk about 5%, which is not very much. The evangelical church, about 8%. Um, Catholicism is 16%, but I actually put it at the bottom because the, the vast majority of immigrants to the U.S. are Catholic, and people who study kind of religious stuff, sorry, I get into stats and stuff, think that actually Catholicism has been leading, like it's really struggled, it's just that immigration patterns have really helped. And then the main line is about 29%, um, that it's shrunk in the last 20 years, okay? Then let me put up the average lengths of worship services for those groups. And I just put that up there to say, do you kind of notice a pattern in to be clear, all right? If you're a stats person, first of all, you're probably thinking right now, and you're correct, correlation and causation are not the same thing, right? Which is to say, it is not the case that it is simply like that having longer times of worship and longer sermons and things like that grows a church. Otherwise, we could just go for five hours, right? Every church could go for five hours, and like Christianity would be exploding in America. That's, that's not what it's saying. There are theological reasons behind both of those realities that, that drive that. But I say that to you just because I think some people just practically have this idea that the way to um, that the way to solve Christianity struggles in the U.S. is by making Christianity easier and easier for people. And what's striking to me is that in general, the groups that have taken that approach have actually been the groups that have struggled in the U.S. Whereas those that have instead emphasized that Christianity is a hard and real calling that we need to seek to grow in are the groups that are generally doing. That's practically. And then theologically. What is gathered worship is the question I want to ask you. What, what, why do we do this thing and gather together as the church? I mean, you could give lots of answers like that, you know, we're told to in the Bible or whatever. But at root in scripture, the reason is because what we are doing is gathering as God's kingdom people to experience God's presence. That's what gathered worship is. It's a gathering of God's kingdom people to experience God's presence. Does that sound familiar, that language? That's because that's exactly what we were saying about that blessing that we're hoping for. That, that heaven, God coming to earth and establishing his reign and showing forth his presence in the age to come, the closest thing we do in this age to that, the thing that is meant to be a foretaste of that, is the gathering together of God's people in worship. That's why we do all the stuff we do. We sing God's praises, right? We come to his table and, you know, and are fed by, by Jesus. We hear him speak his word to us. We talk to him in prayer. We do all of that stuff because that is the, that is the fundamental building blocks of the age to come, of the place that we're headed. The church is not a thing you go to for an hour on Sunday, right? The church is what we all are all of the time as God's people living. But what we do in gathered worship is that the church comes together and has this time where they 
are constituted as God's people, right? Look around like this is God's people of God's kingdom here on earth in this age, and they experience God's presence. That's why we do this. If that is true, then I want to first ask a very challenging question to you, then try to give you an encouragement. So no, because I know I'm going to say something that is hard for some of you. I, I say so that we can then give an encouragement and a different way of thinking. But first, the challenging question. I was thinking about the great pastor and author, A.W. Tozer. He, he kind of runs through what we just said about how worship is this time that's as close to heaven as you can. And then he says this. He says, I can safely say, on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God, that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Which is to say, the hard question is, if this is something that you just see as a chore, you know, to be checked off and then done with as quickly as possible, do you think you're going to enjoy the age to come? Because in this age, this is as close as it gets to that. And like I said, I know that's a hard question, right? I understand that that's hard. But the reason I ask that is because there's actually a better, more beautiful way for you to experience this. Because the reason I think a lot of people struggle at root is not because, um, it's not because of some, like, unchangeable reality, but simply because we lack the perspective to make this gathered worship into what it truly is. If we just had the right perspective, it would actually change how we experience it. And here's what I mean. Think about... Think about our, like, our praise time of singing praise songs together, right? Like, our praise team is great, and they do a wonderful job, and I'm really grateful for all of their hard work. And we try to choose good, biblical, rich songs for us to sing together as God's people. But still, like, you can totally, you know, check out. You can just, you know, put your hands in your pockets or whatever, and, you know, it's just a thing to get through, especially if singing isn't really your thing. But just imagine what would happen if that curtain to heaven was torn up, like th this back wall, like just ripped off, right? And we're staring into God's throne room, you know? <laughs> you know, and you see his glory shining out before us. He's seated there on the throne with the, the lamb before him and the elders and the cherubim falling down. Like, imagine that that happens here in five minutes when we start singing, right? Like, is that going to change how you engage with that? You know, I'm going to like sing my voice hoarse, right? I'm going to like, there's going to be tears in my eyes. My heart's going to be lifted up because I am in God's presence. I am actually singing the praises of my creator before his throne. But that's actually what we're doing every time we sing. It's just that we don't have the eyes to see it. If we have that change in perspective, that actually empowers every part of worship. I mean, it's so easy for me to pray and not just, not just see the fact that like, God is listening right now. Like where two or three are gathered together, he's there with them, hearing them, present with them. When, when I hear scripture read, right, like it's so easy to miss it. Like this is like the word of God, the thing that like spoke creation and shakes the pillars of the mountain. Like this is actually God speaking to us. When we come to the Lord's table, Jesus is actually broken and his blood is shed and he stands there welcoming us and proclaiming to us his love and his grace. When we just have the hearts, our hearts open, have our eyes opened to see that reality, then that actually has the ability to shift our worship from something that we endure, something that we hurry through, into something that has a real power to change and grow us. What we are doing here um, is actually a foretaste of that blessing which is to come. 
And it does take some work and some discipline at times to get to that place. I mean, just speaking frankly, even as a pastor, right, there, there are mornings when I'm just like, ah, you know, <laughs> like, like I understand that challenge at times. But when we look forward, see that hope that is coming, and recognize that this is our chance for us to begin to taste that. It has a real power to strengthen our hearts and turn us into people who are eager in anticipating the blessing of God's presence that is coming. Let's pray. God and Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we enter into worship. Pray that you would help us all to have a proper soberness, love of the gospel from your judgment, and to have a great hope and anticipation of the world restored and your presence dwelling with us. Pray that we might now, out of that, sing your praises. Amen.